Friends, we're in our last chapter of Lamentations. It's been, a, in some ways, a slog, but in a lot of ways, it's been very refreshing as we've looked at many different themes in Lamentations. And in case you haven't noticed, there are themes that continue to come up and they kind of circle back around. And, and in a lot of ways, you could preach a, the same sermon for a lot of these different chapters because Jeremiah is at pains as he's circling back and he's reminded of all of this devastation that's happened in, in Jerusalem and he's wrestling with what God is doing in the midst of, of all of this devastation. And so we see these themes come up again, but yet this fifth chapter, this fifth and final chapter does have some distinctions that makes it unique. And so I want to draw out what some of those distinctions are before we actually read our passage. First of all, Unlike the other four chapters, this chapter doesn't follow an acrostic setting. So so what Jeremiah is trying to do is he's trying to draw our attention to what's getting ready to happen. He's getting ready to to pause and he wants us to meditate on all of this this language that he's that he's given us in the first four chapters for our grief and for our suffering. And he comes to this fifth chapter and it breaks. There's a dramatic break in the way that the, the way the whole book is, is shaped, because like I said, chapters one through four follows A, B, C, D, all the way through Z, but not here. And so Jeremiah is drawing our attention that something different is happening. So that's one way that this is different. Secondly, uh, this chapter doesn't start like chapters one, two, and four. One, two, and four, if you remember, those chapters start with that word how. Or that Hebrew word ekah, and I and I draw I draw attention to that because this is this this word of this this deep guttural anguish that Jeremiah is feeling. He's like ekah, right? He's he's feeling it. And he's like, Lord, how long? How long will it be before you vindicate your name and your righteousness by redeeming your people? And so this doesn't start with ekah. It doesn't start with how. It starts with the word remember. Remember, and so Jeremiah automatically is starting to shift our attention by these couple differences. And then finally, you know, we get a glimmer of this in chapter three, where Jeremiah finally turns at the end of that. and He calls out to God. And that was actually one of the points in that message. But this whole chapter is a prayer. It's a prayer to God. So instead of talking about all the stuff that's happening at this point, Jeremiah's eyes turn up to God. and He says, remember, oh, God, remember your people. And that and it's, so it's an extended 22 verses of that. And, and if you wanted to get into the particulars, it actually has this almost like staccato feel to it. It's a lot briefer. Each verse is a little more short than the previous uh, four chapters. And so Jeremiah has gone through this weeping, gone through this grieving in the first four chapters. And he said that even though there's chaos all around, there's still some kind of rhyme and reason to what God wants to do in the midst of this. And so prayer then isn't something that he just turns to and he does. But prayer actually is something that he becomes, becomes a praying person. And so, quite frankly, when we're told in Scripture to pray without ceasing... It's not as though we're supposed to treat prayer as as though it's like something we do, but instead it's something that we are. And God is doing a work in each one of our lives to make prayer something that we are, that we are, that we're so intimately connected to the life of God that our life and his life begin to 
intermingle and God himself lives his life through us and so that when we speak and when we eat and when we drink everything we do is for the glory of God because we're living lives that are pleasing to him and so prayer isn't something that oh I got to pray more no no that, that that unfortunately and my first point is going to be just that about prayer so prayer is not something you're just like oh, I got to do more of that I mean, I'm just such a really bad prayer person No, that's not what you should be hearing. Instead, you should be hearing that prayer, lack of prayer, is a deep internal problem more than it's something that you need to do more of. So before I get ahead of myself and start getting into the the points of the passage, let me just read Lamentations chapter 5. Lamentations chapter 5. We'll read it in its entirety. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion. Young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate. The young men, their music, the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this, our heart has become sick. For these things, our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. So last week, we were challenged to live holy lives as holy priests. And each one of us, if we are believers, are called priests to God. And our calling is to be holy as God is holy. And so we are to be holy priests. And so the question then becomes, how? How are we to be holy? Well, I think that we get at four ways in which we are to be holy from this passage. So how are we to live out our callings as priests to God? Don't. That's the, that's the main question that, that I'm seeking to answer from this passage. It's the main point of what I think this passage is about. Is that how are we to live our lives? And I think Jeremiah gives us a model for how we ought to live our lives. So you can't just say, okay, this word, then these words equal up to this argument. No, you look at the very life of Jeremiah, what he's doing in this moment. He's showing us what it looks like to be a priest of God. And so chapter 5 is his... His demonstration of what a priest does, what a priest does. And so so there's four points to how are we to pursue holy lives as priests to God. 
to the first one is this. Our calling is a calling of prayer. Our calling is a calling of prayer. Now, as already mentioned, this whole chapter is a prayer to God, isn't it? It starts and ends in addressing God. And, and a lot of times this can be belabored in church. We, we need to be praying more. Why do you think that is? Because prayer is the most often neglected thing that we do as priests to God. Right? And, and again, you know, as I've already mentioned, this is not you got to pray more. No, this has got to be something that takes deep root in your own heart to where you want to pray. When difficulties come in your life, is your tendency to pray or is it to try to figure it out on your own? When good things are happening in your life, is your tendency to pray and thank God for the gift? Or is it to say, wow, I think I got that one pretty good. Yeah, that's great. No, but see, what in Jeremiah's case, what he's showing us is that a priest of God is one who prays. One who prays. And you see, if you're like me, you're really quick to turn on a podcast when there's any kind of silence. You're quick to turn the radio up to your favorite song or you're quick to respond on social media to, with comment and then banter back and forth as opposed to praying. Praying. See, prayer is an attitude, not an item to be checked off on a list. Prayer is a disposition and not a duty. So when, when Paul tells us, like I've already mentioned, that we are to pray without ceasing, it's not a burden that he's loading on our backs. He's saying, why would you not? <laughs> why would you not talk to God? Why would you not pray about everything? Why is it so hard? It's because we haven't really had our hearts affected in such a way that where else can I go? Where else can I go if I can't go to God? There's an author named Henry Nguyen who I... Uh, love And if you can get a hold of any of his books, please do. Please read them. And he says this about prayer. He says, through prayer, we can carry in our heart all human pain and sorrow, all conflicts and agonies, all torture and war, all hunger, loneliness and misery. Not because of some great psychological or emotional capacity that you and I have. But because God's very heart has become one with our heart. Prayer is about the process of God changing you into the person that he wants you to be. Too often we treat prayer as a transaction between us and God. It's not just, you know, a lot of times we can talk about prayer not being just a, a laundry list of things you want from God or like for Santa Claus, what you want to get from God. No, we, I think we're, we, we know that well enough, but then why don't we? <laughs> Why, why, why is it so hard for us to move from that laundry list? Lord, my sin is so sin. You know, like just going from there to, to being able to have a conversation with God, to talking with God, to reading in his word and re- talking with him from his word. And I've mentioned this before. I mentioned it at our, at our members meeting. And I'm going to mention it again because I don't I don't say things flippantly and I don't say things just to get a reaction, just to manipulate and get all of us to do something. You see, I said that I want our church to be known for two things and two things only. We've got our five core values, but all those five core values have to fall under these two things. And if they don't, then we're missing the mark. Missing the mark. And those two things are prayer and evangelism. Prayer and proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Because that's what a 
faithful priest does. <laughs> a faithful priest prays. Right? Let me be very clear. If we are not praying together, church, if we're not praying together, if we are not proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, we are being faithless. You are being faithless. I am being faithless. If I am not praying, if I am not telling people about Jesus, then I am being a faithless priest. And woe to us if we don't take that and own that. Instead of saying, yeah, I need to do that more. No, do it more. Do it because of what God has done in your heart. Not because somebody's going to beat you over the head. Because of what God's done in your heart. What he's done in your life. Why would you not pray and why would you not proclaim? So I'll, I'll mention it again and I'll have, I'll have us talk about this at our community groups too. But how can we be praying as a church? How can we be praying together earnestly, seeking God's face? And this is not a guilt trip, but, but Ken and I were the only ones praying together before the service. That's an opportunity for us to pray together. And it's, again, no guilt, but there is got to be some other avenue by which we pray together. Because if we're not praying, we're being faithless priests. I'm saying it very candidly and as clear as I can. Have you ever heard of a priest that doesn't pray? So church, let us be a praying people because our calling is a calling to pray. Secondly, our calling is a calling of empathy. Our calling is a calling of empathy. So we we get the prayer piece. Let's let God do his work through his spirit as we listen to the rest of this message. But then secondly, our calling is a calling of empathy. Now, where do I get that? Well, I want you to notice how Jeremiah prays in this prayer. Almost every single phrase, and I started to look on here, there's a, there's a few that aren't this way, but almost every single line uses the first person plural. <laughs> almost every single line, and you can see it, and I tried to highlight it without making it too awkward, but he says, he doesn't say me and my, I, 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 I. He says we, our, us, right? He says, remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace, our inheritance. We have become orphans, fatherless, widows. See, it's not simply a my, but it's an our. And so what Jeremiah is showing us is that he, as a, as a prophet and as a priest of God, as Christians, we are called to be communal people, to be in relationship with other people, to empathize with other people. He wasn't, he wasn't an orphan. He wasn't a widow. But he says, our, we have become this way. How can he say that? Because a mature priest, a mature Christian, is one who has moved beyond what I can get out of a church service. And has instead looked, and she looks around and she sees all of these opportunities of which she can serve Monday through Sunday. Not just in the context of this building. I'm not talking about that. You all know me well enough. I'm not talking about we have all these things that you've got to do. No. But it's someone who looks off of themselves and looks up and looks around. That's what a mature Christian does. A mature Christian stops saying, well, I didn't get much out of that message. Or I didn't get much out of that music or that service. No. Somebody, you know, there's a, there's a pastor down in, in Florida. He says, you know, my, my, my preaching isn't all that great. Um, but... 
people seem to be growing because they are already mature. They're not, they're not disdaining. They're not criticizing. Instead, they're like, huh, you can almost get, you, if you're walking in the Spirit, if you are seeking to grow and to know God more, even a really cruddy sermon can edify you. So I, I, I take heart in that. <laughs> But that's the truth, is that a mature Christian has moved on from, oh, what can I listen to? What can I, 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 and it moves on to we, our, us. It says, Lord, forgive us, forgive us. And so it's someone who has empathy. And so in considering this empathy, I want us to notice just a couple things in this empathy, empathy, because Jeremiah, not only was he not a, a widow or an orphan, but he empathizes with people who have become widows and orphans. People who are the outcasts of society. But Jeremiah, if you remember, was righteous. He was thrown into a pit. He was, his life was, was constantly being uh, uh, marginalized. And he was constantly being looked at by, by the religious folk. as saying, we're going to kill him. Because why? Because he was righteous. And yet he has the heart to not point fingers, this is the second thing, not to point fingers and say, yeah, they had it coming. I told them they didn't listen to me. Now, that's not what Jeremiah is doing, is he? He's saying, no, this, these are my people. The, I am one of them. And just like Isaiah says, you know, I, am a, I am someone who dwells with a people of unclean lips. Woe is me because these are the people that I live with. And, and there's this, this sense in which we get of Jeremiah saying, yes, I've lived according to your law as best as I could. But look and see our disgrace, our inheritance, and our homes have all been devastated. And so we embrace our calling when we begin to look at our neighbors and stop saying they and them. And we start saying us and we. And that's neighbors, and there's three spheres in which I've tried to articulate who is our neighbor. It's where you sleep, your neighborhood, where you live, where you work. It's the second sphere. And the third sphere is where you worship. And so if in any of those three spheres that you say, that you don't find yourself saying we and our, then that's on us. Right? That's, that's our fault if we have not gone and become part of that community and that God has placed us. God is providentially put us as redeemer here in this place. God has sovereignly and providentially put you in your neighborhood. And God has given you the job that he's given you. To empathize and to, to be near those particular people. And so if we don't own that, if we don't say we, our, Lord, forgive us for our sin. Then we've forsaken our calling to live in the midst of people. The very people that God has placed us, the very people that need to hear the good news of Jesus, the very people that are longing to know who Jesus is and want you to say something. They're longing for you to say something. They're longing for you to draw near to them and say, how can I pray for you as a priest of God? How can I pray for you? Thirdly, so our calling is not just a calling of prayer, a calling of of empathy, but our calling is a calling to lead. A calling is a calling to lead. So how does Jeremiah lead in this chapter of prayer? Well, he, he leads by praying, first of all, but then he leads in lament. 
This is something that's implicit throughout the whole book. But Jeremiah is leading God's people to know how to lament. That it's okay, as I said uh, just last week and the week before, that it's okay to hurt. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's okay to suffer. It's okay to hurt. It's not because your faith is weak. It's because God's doing a work. He's shaping and he's breaking so that he can mend and heal. So we, as God's priests... Have the freedom to lament. Have the freedom to demonstrate to people how to lament. How to grieve. Because we follow a suffering servant, don't we? We follow a man who was acquainted with grief and sorrow. One from whom men hide their faces. Someone who, who knows what it means to suffer as you have suffered in every way and yet was without sin. So of all people, we ought to know how to grieve and lament and be able to to take that to God. To lay that at his feet, both for ourselves and for other people. And so Jeremiah leads in lamenting. But what's, what's really important here is that Jeremiah isn't just simply grieving the way the world is. That's really the tendency in a lot of... Uh, messages that you'll hear from Lamentations like, wow, God's people suffered, you suffer, that's how they connect. Well, no, God's people are suffering in Lamentations because of what? Because of their sin. So Jeremiah is leading by demonstrating, by proclaiming, by telling the stark reality of sin. Do you see that in verse 7? Our fathers, what did they do? They didn't mess up. They didn't just teach us poorly. Our fathers sinned And are no more. And we what? We bear their iniquities. So instead of only lamenting the brokenness in our world. We lead by calling sin, sin. We lead by pointing people to God's standard of righteousness and holiness. Not in a condemning, looking down your nose kind of way. But with empathy, right? That's the second point. Empathy. We empathetically tell people about sin. We aren't simply coming alongside people and saying, yeah, the world, world's kind of messed up, isn't it? Yeah, it is messed up. There's a time for that. But what we see here in Jer- the way Jeremiah is lamenting is that he moves on and toward the fact that there is always a divine reference point for what we're experiencing in life. There's always a divine reference point. And how you are experiencing your life has everything to do with your view of God. Your view of doing things your own way. But, 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 we don't stop there. Right? How else does he lead? He leads by confessing his own sin. So he leads in lamenting, he leads in calling sin, sin, and he leads by confessing his own sin. And we ought to have that freedom to confess our own sin. So he said that in verse 7, but then look at verse 16. Verse 16, he says, the crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. And I think we agree with this in theory. That, yeah, I I confess sin. I should confess sin. But the question remains, are we actually confessing sin? Again, I'm sure that you would agree with me that, yes, I should confess my sin to God. I should confess my sin to other people when I sin against them. But the question is... Are you confessing your sin? Or are you hedging? Are you making excuses? Are you saying, well, you don't know all the situation? Well, that's right. That's not the point. The point is is that you 
have the freedom in Christ to be able to say, yeah, I messed up. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm sorry. Because there's liberation, there's freedom that happens when you say, I'm sorry. I promise you, when, when I get in arguments with my amazing wife, and I am at pains to not say, I'm sorry, how horrible does that go for everyone in the house? Because I want everyone to know that, hey, I was right to, to get upset. But when I can just simply say, babe, I'm, I'm sorry. You know it too, right? And that's what Jeremiah does. And he shows us is that it's okay. There's great freedom when you do that. There's great freedom. Freedom when you talk to your coworker in a in a crass way or in a mean way. To be able to say, oh, man, that was wrong. I'm sorry. Instead of saying, oh, I hope he doesn't think I'm a bad person. No, just say I'm sorry because you are. You know, and you need you need grace and you need mercy. And there's abundant mercy and grace. We swim in an ocean of grace. And why can we not just say, I messed up. Again, for the 70 times, seventh time, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But please, forgive me. I'm going to ask God to help me. So we know that faithless or faithful priests pray. We know that faithful priests come alongside and are empathetic with other people. And we know that faithful priests lead. But then lastly... Our our last point is faithful priests minister. So our calling as priests to God is a calling to minister. And you may say, well, that's pretty obvious. Well, yeah, good. I'm glad glad it's obvious. Because let's look at our text in verses 19 through 22. How does Jeremiah model this for us? He says, but you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? And why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us. And you remain exceedingly angry with us. See, Jeremiah, at the end of this beautiful book, Praise to God and ask God to do what only God can do. Restore us to yourself so that we may be restored. Renew us and we will be renewed. See, the primary issue, and you'll see this in the text here, restore us to yourself, O Lord. The primary issue that our world has isn't more arguing, isn't a logical sequence of arguments that we can give. It's not a lifestyle. We're trying to get people to just stop sinning. That's not the main issue that our world has. The main issue our world has is with a person. Restore us not to righteous living. Restore us not to making sure that everybody knows our testimony is crisp and clean. Restore us to yourself, O God, that we may be restored. We must be restored to God himself. But God uses means, doesn't he? God uses means to accomplish his ends. Let me, let me quote again from Henry Nouwen. He says, prayer and action can never be seen as contradictory or mutually exclusive. Prayer and action aren't two separate things. Prayer without action grows into powerless pietism. And action without prayer degenerates into questionable manipulation. So prayer and action must go together. In fact, they are together whenever you see this in Scripture. 
And this is where I think, and this is where we'll end, but this is where I think that the passage from 2 Thessalonians that we heard just a moment ago that was read is extremely informative for us. How are we called to minister? How does restoration that, that we pray for, how does renewal happen? Well, it ultimately true happens because God does that work in our hearts. But like I said, God uses means to accomplish those goals. I I have my heart restored through prayer. I have my vision cleared up by right thinking, by right study of God's word. God uses means to accomplish his work of restoration. And so that's where we get this last point. Our calling is a call to minister, to be the very means of that end. See, our human tendency can be that we want God to do his work of restoration and we're passive in the process. God, renew me. Restore me. Do this work in my heart. Help, help bring revival. And true, true, 100%, hear me out, that God is the one who does that. But he still uses a preacher, right? Romans 10. He still uses means to accomplish that purpose. And see, the Thessalonian church was that same way. They were, they were saying, well, Jesus is coming back, so I'm not going to work. I'm going to just be passive and wait for God to break through all this persecution that's happening. No, they, they didn't. They weren't satisfied with that. That's not what the Thessalonians, see, the Thessalonian church was saying, well, if God's going to break through and if he ultimately is in control, then I don't have to do anything. And I'm just going to sit here and wait, relax, put my feet up because it's God that does the work. Well, they got lazy in their faith. They got frustrated in their faith. They got lost in their faith. And so what's Paul's response? How does Paul seek to remedy that? He tells them about God's grace and that, yes, Jesus will come. He'll return. And we look forward to that day. But while we wait for that, we don't just sit back passively and wait for that to happen, do we? He says in in 2 Thessalonians 3 that we just heard, verse 6, he says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. But it's not as though they weren't doing anything, right? They were doing something. So it's a a little wrong to say they were putting their feet up, because they were doing something. We can can get that in these next verses. See, they they weren't guilty of, of not doing anything. They were guilty of doing the wrong things. They were caught up in a slurry of activities that didn't distinguish them from the world around them at all. They were busy, but they failed to prioritize the most valuable things in life. Where do I get that? The next verse is in 2 Thessalonians 3. I'm still there. Verse 11 says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. When he talks about idleness, he isn't talking about just sitting and hunkering in a corner and just not doing anything, folding your hands and sitting down. He's talking about, no, you can be busy, but idle. So each of us needs to be reminded of what I shared last week. At the end of the day, we need to be courageous. We need to be brave. We need to not be lulled into some kind of complacency that the world is going to try to distract you from what is the most important things in life. And so I'm here to tell you, to tell myself that don't be led astray. Don't be just coddled into some kind of complacency in your life thinking that, oh, I'm just so busy, so busy. You may be busy with the wrong things. 
You may be idle even though you're busy because you aren't prioritizing the most important things in life. See, there are far too many folks who go by the name of Christian who are complacent toward the things of God. Perhaps this morning you're bored with your faith. Perhaps you're weary from working so hard. Perhaps you're busy with many unimportant things in the grand scheme of things. But let me just challenge you with this. Instead of accepting that just as the way things are, that, man, I'm just busy, I want to challenge you to sit down and just spend a few moments asking the hard questions. The questions that maybe have been circling in the back of your mind, but you just don't want to answer them. So let me just ask these questions, these questions to you that hopefully will guide you to, to make keeping the main thing the main thing. Keeping the most important things in the front and center of your life. What is the most important thing in my life? What truly is the most important thing in my life? And you can honestly see that by what you're spending your time on. That reveals more than what you say. What do I want to be known for? When you're on your deathbed, what do you want people to say about you that was of most value value to you? And quite honestly, what am I truly willing to die for? What are the things in my life that I am willing to lay down everything, to sell everything, to buy that treasure in a field? Because it is worth immeasurably more than anything I have. To recall friends, priests to God, to pray, to empathize, to lead, and to minister. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we hear this and we know that in so many ways we have been like Eli, a faithless priest, like Hophni and Phinehas, his sons, the faithless priests. And Father, we confess to you as we've confessed earlier, we confess to you that we fall short of your glory. And we ask you to renew in our own hearts again a zeal and a passion for your name and for your renown in this city, in our own lives. We pray that you, God, would break in. And in that breaking in, you would show us that you made us for so much more. So, God, make us holy priests and courageous Christians. Make us the kind of people that look and talk And act differently than the world around us. Because our hope is placed somewhere else and in someone else. But we need you by your spirit to do that work in our own hearts. And we invite you Holy Spirit even now. Before we take the Lord's Supper. We we invite you Holy Spirit to come. Not only to convict us of sin. Because I know that there is a conviction of sin in this room. But instead to also lead us on paths of righteousness. To remind us of your love for us, your acceptance, your giving us of the new birth. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, for you to come and for you to kindle anew our hearts. To renew us, to restore us. We ask this in the matchless name of King Jesus. Amen.